Earth's Legal Toolkit with Jared Correa. With guest Mark Bassingthwaite, we play historic mistakes. And then, spoiler warning! That's right, spoilers ahead. What are we spoiling? Well, we're not going to spoil that. But first, your host, Jared Correa. That's right, everybody. It's Howdy Doody time. Actually, not really. It's just a legal toolkit podcast, which is still pretty good, right? Right? And yes, it's still called the Legal Toolkit Podcast, even though I have no idea what a pocket hole jig does. Unless it's a dance, then I might know it. No, no, I don't know it. I'm your host, Jared Korea. You're stuck with me because Alf was unavailable. He's working on a reboot of Alf's hit talk show. I'm the CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting, a business management consulting service for attorneys and bar associations. Find us online at redcavelegal.com. I'm the COO of Gideon Software, an intake platform for law firms. Learn more and schedule a demo at gideonlegal.com. Now, before we get to our interview today with Mark Bassingthwaite of Alps Insurance, let's dive back into AI, this time with a twist. Everybody only wants to talk about AI anymore, and I guess I'm about to do it again. To quote an obscure musical artist, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. But I've been thinking about AI in sort of a way, and I don't know that I've heard this take elsewhere, so I'm going to roll with it. Every tech company, legal tech companies included, are currently rushing to produce AI products or to add AI features to existing products. Of course, some of that is bullshit. There's basically no regulation of whether a company can refer to their product as an AI tool. After all, this isn't a structured regime quite yet, like food ingredient labeling, for example. So I know that some of your AI is bullshit. I see you. There are lots of companies adding AI features or calling themselves AI tools that are definitely not AI products. But there are also a bunch of AI tools out there that are really AI. Right now, a lot of those are integrations with ChatGPT or other generative AI tools or their companies rolling out their own generative AI offerings, which I'm guessing are almost all some kind of mix of proprietary technology and some white label shit, but that's okay. The technology will improve. It's supposed to. I mean, the central thesis of AI that separates it from any technology that came before it is that it can learn over time and make actual intellectual gains in much the same way that humans do. And there is massive future potential for AI in the legal field, I admit it. And that would include applications for automation, data analytics, drafting, and more. But AI is not only very unique in its potential and application. It's also been a different kind of rollout for technology providers, including in the legal space. In many cases, legal tech companies have just added significant features as part of their existing platforms without raising prices. Remember that. For example, as law practice management software providers rolled out extensive feature upgrades, they largely did it at no additional cost. Take e-signature features, for example, which are often included at least up to a certain volume in law practice management software tiers. 
The same has been true as these software companies have rolled out proprietary e-payment tools. Yeah, you have to pay the processing fees, but the monthly fees for the products have largely gone away. Those get wrapped up in the platform cost. But again, AI is different. The AI features that are launching in legal tech now are coming in at an additional cost, so you're paying separately for them. And that's not just true in legal tech. That's true everywhere. Sometimes that's an added cost to your existing subscription. Sometimes it's a useless charge. and Sometimes the cost is pretty significant. In some cases, even a single use of an AI feature may cost you more than your entire subscription for a platform that features AI. Which begs the question, will lawyers be willing to pay separately for AI tools and AI features? And then, follow-up question, how much will they be willing to pay? So yeah, I think obviously lawyers will pay for AI tools. That's going to be a thing. They kind of have to, right? In order to keep up with their competition and probably to meet client demands. I'd be a fool to suggest otherwise, and mama didn't raise no fool I think the rate of adoption, though, is really the question. Because if you're very online, which could be one way to describe me, I suppose, it seems like all everybody wants to talk about is AI. They're trying it out, looking at innovative solutions. Everybody is a technology badass. But is the average lawyer all that interested in AI applications? I would say hell no. So this is going to take some time and education to get a majority of attorneys on board just like it did with the cloud. And it may take a crisis to push them over the edge. Hopefully not another fucking pandemic. The open part of this question then will be, how much are lawyers going to pay for AI? And how soon? Now, I'm not suggesting that I have an answer right now to either of those questions. I don't. But then again, I don't need to. The market's going to bear this out. So are tech companies pricing AI solutions correctly? Or will there be a market correction? Are bleeding-edge users just willing to pay more than laggards? I guess we'll see. To paraphrase Red from the Shawshank Redemption, AI adoption by lawyers is a study of pressure and time. That's all it takes, really. Pressure and time. That and a big goddamn poster. Let's find out more about what our sponsors can do for your busy law practice before we talk about legal malpractice in the modern world with Mark Bassingthwaite of Alps Insurance. Then stay tuned as we discuss truly historic mistakes in the rump roast where we never fuck anything up because I have all the answers. Partner with Rankings.io, the marketing agency for law firms that want results, not excuses. With flat rates for Google ads, a track record ranking attorneys for the most competitive terms on Google, and a team always easy to reach by phone, even during off hours, Rankings.io is the agency of choice for firms that want the rankings, traffic, and cases other law firm marketing agencies just can't deliver. Visit Rankings.io for a free consultation and start seeing your firm grow. Contract automation isn't a trend. It's a strategic imperative. Though big players in the e-sign world will make you believe implementing it will cost you big bucks and more than a few headaches, it doesn't have to be that way. DocuB is an easy-to-onboard, full suite of products and includes e-signature, brilliant workflow capabilities, and AI contract automation at nearly half the price of those out-of-touch behemoths. The one thing DocuB doesn't automate? Their customer service. 
visit get.docub.com slash contracts to set up a call with a real live person. DocuB will be with you every step of the way. Okay, everybody, let's get to the meat in the middle of this legal podcasting sandwich. Today's meat is bison. I actually have nothing bad to say about bison. It's really lean and tasty, and it has entirely replaced ground beef in my house going on almost a decade. All right, that's probably enough about my grocery shopping habits. It's time to interview our guest we have today in what I believe is his first and far too long delayed appearance on the Legal Toolkit podcast. It's Mark Bassingthwaite, the National Risk Manager at Elps Insurance. Say that three times fast. Mark, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. I'm doing good. Thanks for having good. me, Jay. Good to be here. Excellent. It's great to have you on the show. I can't believe we haven't had you on yet. It's great. So let's dive into some questions. Okay. You are the National Risk Manager at Alps, which honestly sounds like a dream job for a lot of lawyers who are some of the most risk averse people I know. So what is that gig like in real life? Well, actually, it's evolved over the years. It started out doing a lot of consulting, and I would spend roughly two weeks out of every month on the road going into law firms of every shape and size and conducting what we would call a risk visit. And just interview lawyers, you interview staff, just depends on the size of the firm, you know, but just a lot of teaching, a lot of education. So you would actually go in and do like on-site audits? Mm Mm-hmm, I've done over 1,200. Oh my gosh, that sounds like a lot. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) from solos and I, you know, and I have some crazy stories. some well, you made the mistake of going into a law firm. So well, yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah. I've, I've had a few, <laughs> I should say, you know, really positive experiences. And I've had a few just like, who the heck do you think you are? I just want my discount. Get out of here. <laughs> you know, but now, you know, now it's more of, uh, I, I would say the initial time it was about, you know, it was viewed as risk reduction, really trying right. to see if we could impact the claim frequency and severity numbers. And the reality is it didn't play that way. You have this problem of the lawyers that want to learn and get better in terms of risk management practices are already your best risk. You know, yeah, right. it was very difficult to get in. Now, I did get into some problem firms that, boy, that would be a whole nother episode. <laughs> but now it's, it's really, it's a marketing thing. You know, I do a lot of content yeah. creation, a lot of a lot of CLE. I typically average maybe 50 CLE events a year. That's a lot. It is a lot, yeah. But it's fun. <laughs> I really enjoy it. There, if, if there's a takeaway from all this, it truly is. There are a lot of great lawyers out there just trying to do the right thing. And I have been really impressed and feel very privileged to have meet all the people that I've, I've worked with. I think that's a very... Great positive spin on that. I love that. So it's kind of interesting because it seems like it's more aligned with the way that people learn and educate themselves now Mm -hmm. that they would want like online access whenever they wanted it versus like having you show up at their office. So that makes a ton of sense to me. Yeah. All right. So you, you 
and Alps work with attorneys all over the United States. And for, yes. are you guys are you guys global as well, or just U.S. No, based? No, no, we okay. are sort of the tagline of the company is we're the nation's largest direct writer of legal malpractice insurance in, in the U.S. We really are the solo small firm space. I mean, that's right. and we're we're quickly moving into. I would say you know it, it's almost a Geico model in the sense of you know you give us twenty minutes or whatever and apply online and you know we can we can get quotes out it was not like that 25 years ago so oh for sure yeah and you don't have a lizard but i think you have a llama is that we right we do have a llama yes vera yes. <laughs> i've seen some commercials <laughs> uh-huh yeah yeah so in terms of like how that works across the united states Do you find that like legal issues differ from state to state or jurisdiction to jurisdiction, or is it like all the same stuff? Because, you know, I I do consulting and I I hear like people are like, oh, like, but my law firm is in Missouri. And I'm like, same stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Do you feel the same way? Yeah, I would say it's the same stuff. Okay. I mean, what we see is there are going to be certain pockets that are more litigious. You could guess pretty quickly, you know, some places where that might be. Los Angeles is an example. New York City. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, I can guess. You know, it, yep. it's going to be more litigious. Big metropolitan areas, right? Yes, where just more exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So beyond that, it's similar throughout. Let's talk about practice areas. Okay. Because it, I think it is true, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that there are some practice areas that are more litigious, to use a turn of phrase that you just yes. used, for attorneys than others, right? That's yeah. like a well, real higher thing. risk. Higher risk. Higher risk. Practices. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So what are some of the practice areas you should be avoiding? <laughs> <laughs> or maybe that's the wrong way to put it. I don't know. Well, you know, it's an interesting question because if, and I, I, will, I will answer that, but you know, there's obviously a lot of lawyers that are practicing in these areas, but right. to say, what should you be avoiding if this isn't your ballywick? Don't dabble in these practice areas because it's high risk. You know, personal injury plaintiff right. is, is been number one most of the time during my coming up on twenty six years. Real estate jumped into number one. Oh, right after two thousand and eight, and it hung in there as number Sounds one about I think, right. for about three years. Yeah, for obvious reasons. But real estate, personal injury plaintiff, uh, domestic uh, is big, estate and trust, and then uh, corporate. Gotcha. Those are the top concerns. I think the point about dabbling makes sense as well. I think that's true. I've seen that a lot, especially like if somebody's like, hey, I'm going to mess around and take an immigration case. Not the best idea ever. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you counsel firms that are in high risk? areas. Like they need to be more diligent, right? But what does that actually mean? Or, or do they? Are you like, well, hey, everybody should do best practices? You know, my job is really centered on letting them know what we see day in and day out. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and tell them any substantive kinds of stuff, but, you know, we focus on file documentation mistakes a lot of lawyers really don't appreciate how to properly document a file. If I'm looking at personal injury plaintiff, I'm going to talk about what calendaring really looks like because a lot of lawyers get confused. We tend to focus or prioritize redundant systems and they really need to be independent systems. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'll teach process and you know, there are good firms that listen and make all kinds of changes and there are some others that just 
Not interested. Don't. Yes. Audit trail, which is funny to me because like lawyers are good at creating audit trails for their clients in many cases, but not so good when it comes to managing their own practice. So yeah, I hear you there. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about cyber insurance. Like everybody's talking (laughs) about cyber insurance. You're laughing already. (laughs) Everyone's talking about cyber insurance. Lawyers come to me. They're like, that's kind of expensive. I had a lawyer tell me the other day, it's almost more expensive than my regular malpractice insurance. Like, is it worth it? Why do I get it? So can you talk a little bit about that? Because if we're talking about education, I still think there's a little bit of gap there. I I would absolutely agree with you. I have several different CLE programs that I do on cyber risk and cybersecurity. And every time we give one of these programs, calls start coming in. I want a policy now. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) It just scares the Jesus out of everybody. I truly believe that the risk, particularly in the solo and small firm space, of a cyber loss of some sort, cyber problem, is higher than a malpractice problem. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, you know, and, and part of that is because the solo and small firm space really tend to say, this will never happen to us. We're not mm-hmm. on anybody's radar. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I um, mean, the activity in, you know, going after small businesses uh, is, is very, very active. So I would always, always recommend getting a cyber policy. Yes, it can be expensive, but one of the, the coverage mistakes that you will see some small firms make is depending, and it varies by carrier, obviously, but right. uh, some carriers out there will add, if you will, sort of a, a cyber endorsement, and it, it, it's sort of wrapped in. And that can be fairly affordable. Okay. So can you tell me what that means? Like what's an endorsement versus like separate policy? I'm not an insurance guy. There's a difference between standalone coverage, just a cybersecurity policy, a cyber liability policy, and having an endorsement that takes certain characteristics or key components of a standalone policy and wraps it into the malpractice policy. So there'll be some provisions in that. It often is, you know, can be fairly affordable, but what lawyers aren't understanding is there's no underwriting going on. First off, you can just, it just comes right, um, right. if you yeah. want it or not. Sometimes it's opt in, some opt out. There are different models here. But the coverage is nowhere near as broad as a standalone policy. So I would really encourage lawyers, you know, do a little shopping, look for standalone coverage and, and decide up front really what your concern is. Yeah. You know, if you're wanting to insure for, Wire fraud is an example, which is just killing lawyers. Right. That's a very specific path you need to go. A traditional cyber policy isn't going to provide much coverage for that. So you just have to figure out. Cool. That's really helpful. Okay. So like Evan tases me if we don't talk about AI at least once a podcast. So <laughs> okay, let's talk a little bit about AI. So first in general, like how do you feel about these technologies from a risk manager standpoint are you like up at night being like oh my god what kind of trouble are these lawyers going to get into with ai do i lose any sleep over what kind of trouble they're going to get into no i you know you've read some of the cases i've read some of the cases and i sit here and just shake my head in all honesty i'm all in on ai oh i I would like to see it evolve and adopted in a widespread way 
But competency obviously comes into play here. So if law firms are willing to spend the time and money understanding these tools, how to incorporate them, I am all in. I see it as a risk reduction tool. I really do. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay. Because, see, yeah, I would have assumed you would have gone the other way on that, but I like how open-minded you are. I mean, I'm the same way you are. Yeah. I feel like all these cases you read about, just like oversee the tool you're using. Like, this exactly. is not hard. You're not going to be like, hey, AI, are these cases right? Because AI is not going to be like, you know what, Ted, I thought I could fool you, yeah. but I clearly can't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't see any difference between using AI as a research tool and having an associate or a staff person do some research for you. You still have to review it because you're going to put your signature on the paper. You're going to accept accountability for this work product. AI just takes the human being out of it, but the process should be the same. You're still supervising. You still need to review it. All right, that's great. I want to I want to put a pin in that for a second because I have okay. what I think is an interesting thing. I want to ask you about that too. But like, in terms of AI right now and insurance, like, yeah. no special things you need to be doing at least at the present time in terms of your use of AI and malpractice insurance. And do you see that changing at some point? Okay, there is an interesting issue here. Okay, the best way that I know how to answer this right now, if I use AI as a research tool and invest, you know, I'm using it as a tool to help me practice law, to deliver the product or service that I'm, I'm delivering. I don't have any real coverage concerns. The issue is as lawyers begin to, if you will, set AI free. So mm-hmm. that's think about a very sophisticated chatbot that's, you know, DIY model. The question would be, does a malpractice policy respond and cover that ancillary business? I don't think so. And, yeah. and the reason is- it's That's a great point because lawyers are looking okay? to do that. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. So it, it, it's a long way to get to. You really have to say, is how we are using AI part of the practice of law? And if it's a tool that furthers that, I think coverage, at least right now, shouldn't be an issue. But if what you do with it is not the practice of law, you got a problem. So I don't want any assumptions in play. And that's what I'm seeing right now. I'm getting calls about these business models. Well, will our policy cover this? And they'll say, I don't think so, because this isn't the practice of law. Right. Right. And I think that's, I think that's the answer. Like, I feel the same way about that. Yeah. All right. One more question for you in terms of AI, because I think this is really interesting. So right now, the way that a lot of law firms are using AI is it's just another technology, right? Especially generative AI. And with technology, like you're vetting that based on state rules and legal ethics rules about how you want to interact with technology in a competent way as an attorney. But what's going to be really interesting to me is like, you start feeding this technology into like a robot, right? Who works at your law firm? Like, what if you had a robot paralegal? Like that changes the nature of how you treat that from an ethics standpoint, in my opinion, because now it's more like you're overseeing a person than yes, a technology product. So do you have any thoughts on this at this point? Or do you think it's like too early to even bother addressing this? I, I think it's a bit early. I was having a conversation with another colleague here earlier today, sort of on this whole topic of ethics and AI. Yeah. And right now, I think it's not as hot a topic as people think it is or want it to be. Yeah. For me, you know, 
AI, it's competency, it's confidentiality, and it's supervision. Okay, that's great. You know, it's not the tool, it's the lawyers using it. And the ethical issues don't hit AI, they hit the lawyer. You know, so we have to understand, you know, how to deploy this tool in a competent, ethical manner. Now, when there's AI robots that are replacing me as a podcast host and you as a guest, they'll probably have different conversations. I'm sure that they will. (laughs) But but here we are right now. Mark, that was great. Seriously. Thank you. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Will you stick around for the last segment? I would be happy to. Excellent. We'll take one final sponsor break so you can hear more about our sponsor companies and their latest service offerings. Then stay tuned for the rump roast. It's even more supple than the roast beast. Simplify. With Cosmolex, the only fully integrated practice management solution. Everything you need, accessible anywhere. Trust and general accounting is built in, so you don't need QuickBooks. Cosmolex's Money Finder reminds you to bill for work you put into client matters so you don't leak money. That's messy. Lower cost, better business, and less frustration. Yes, please. It's all built in with Cosmolex. Free trial and take 20% off your first year at Cosmolex.com. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went... To a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. Welcome back, everybody. That's right. As usual, we're here at the rear end of the Legal Toolkit. It's the Rump Roast. It's a grab bag of short form topics, all of my choosing. Why do I get to pick? You may be asking yourself, well, because I'm the host. Mark, welcome back. Well, thank you. Thank you for returning. (laughs) I wouldn't miss it. (laughs) (laughs) As the risk manager, the risk manager for a national lawyer malpractice insurance brand, I would expect that you would be an expert in mistakes. So we wanted to test that theory. Okay. (laughs) Let's go for it. I've developed a new game just for you, for you only. I'll never do this again. It's called Historic mistakes. So we're going to quiz you about classic mistakes, and I'll even give you multiple choice if you need them. So I'm going to describe a situation, and then you're going to pick the answer. And as I said, I'm happy to offer multiple choice. If you need it, you may not, because I'm a kind-hearted man. So let's get started. First two can be real easy. Then we're going to ramp things up a little bit. Okay. Number one, the purchase of Alaska was viewed as a historic mistake when the United States pulled the trigger on the acquisition in 1867 for 7.2 million. What was the popular nickname for that transaction? Oh, good Lord. I'll I'll give you, I'll give you multiple choice if you want it. Let's do it. All right, here we go. Stanton's mistake, 
Seward's Folly or Salmon's Screw-Up? I, I got to go with Seward's Folly. Yes, correct. Correct. All right, we're one for one. There we it's go. It's pretty easy, right? Seward, William Seward, Secretary of State, yeah. bought Alaska for $7.2 yeah. I mean, they probably made, you know, a million times more than that. Oh, I know. It's <laughs> On the resources in Alaska. <laughs> That's a screaming buy. All right. Right. All right. I got another one for you. You're off to a good start. The Bay of Pigs invasion failed in part because Kennedy sent B-26 aircraft support too late because he was hanging out with Marilyn Monroe. He was fishing his brother Ted out of the water. Or he screwed up a time zone change between Nicaragua and Cuba. Marilyn, Ted, or time zone changes. I, it's so tempting to say one, but I'm going to go with the time zone. <laughs> That's all right. Good choice. Good choice. So <laughs> the air support on the Bay of Pigs invasion was an hour late because they couldn't figure out the time zone between okay. Nicaragua and Cuba. Amazing. Well, they didn't have Google at the time. Right. What were they supposed to do? <laughs> no AI. How That's can right. you figure out time zones? <laughs> All right, this is fun. I got number three coming your way. Archduke Franz Ferdinand's assassination effectively kicked off World War I. But the assassination itself occurred because, one, his motorcade took a wrong turn, two, his car broke down, or three, he forgot his fancy military helmet at home and had to turn around and go grab it. Wrong turn, broken down car, or he forgot his hat. This was Boy, a little bit this, tougher. This is a little tougher. <laughs> it is. It you is. know, I, I kind of <laughs> like the, the forgot his hat kind of thing, but I'm going to guess it was a wrong turn. Yes, three for three. I made up the whole hat thing. So he had a driver that spoke Czech, and so they spoke different languages. Oh. And so when they were trying to figure out where to go, he stopped the car directly in front of the assassin. Who was Are like, you kidding? Who, yeah, who was just like really shocked and was like, wow, <laughs> here we go. Oh and that's God. what he shot. Wow. Yeah. We try to teach here as well at the Legal yes. Toolkit and not I just about it. the law. All right, you're three for three. Hot start. I got three more for you. Okay, let's do it. One of the reasons the Titanic sank was because, one of these is true, a loose dog on board needed to be captured causing officers to miss the iceberg in view. Two, officers did not have the key to a case for binoculars, which would have allowed them to see the iceberg sooner. Three, one of the officers fell asleep during his watch. So one, dog, two, binoculars, three, a sleepy crew member. Sleepy crew member. Oh, that's a good guess. But what happened is the binoculars were locked in a case. No kidding. A crew member who left the ship in, I think, Ireland, walked off with the keys. So they couldn't open the box that had the oh binoculars, my God. which wow. is crazy. Yeah, that was a great guess, though. All right, you're doing great. You're doing great. Batting 750, 75% correct. That's amazing. So two more. Okay. Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin, which led to the creation of antibiotics because, one... He accidentally spilled a chemical into a Petri dish. Two, he didn't clean his lab while on vacation with his family. 
or three, his assistant disturbed one of his experiments while he was on vacation with his family. So one, he chemical spill. Two, he didn't clean his lab. Three, the wayward assistant. What do you like? Oh, I, I, this is a tough one too. This is a tough one. I'm gonna go with two. Two is correct. Wow, four or five. This is like a Pantheon Rumpro performance, by the way. You're killing it. So basically, he went on vacation with his family for like a month and didn't clean yeah. anything. And when he came back, there was like penicillin growing. So there we go. All right, now to cap this all off, I only got one more question for you, which will all allow right. you to go five for six, which is like seriously like top five performance. Here's one that's pretty relevant because the Beatles just released this new single now and then using AI, which you've yes. probably seen and heard. So in 1961, late 1961, going into 1962, Decca Records passed on signing the Beatles because, one, they claimed that guitar groups were on the way out. Two, they thought their haircuts were stupid. Three, they wanted to replace drummer Pete Best. So one, guitar groups on the way out. Two, bad haircuts. Three, Pete Best was a terrible drummer. I don't know if that's true. That's a really hard one. <laughs> this one is tough. I'm going to go with number one. Mark, yes. Correct again. Five of six. What a monster performance here in the Rump Pro. So yeah, they went and they played like 15 tracks. And they were like, sorry, guitar groups aren't going to be a thing anymore. Yeah. And then they signed with Parlophone and the rest is history. Seriously, amazing job. Well, thank you. And it turns out you are an expert on mistakes as a <laughs> national risk manager for Elves. Thank you for coming on, sir. This was delightful. Well, thank you for having me, Jared. I loved it. Loved it. Been a lot of fun. If you want to find out more about Mark Bassingthwaite and Elps Legal Malpractice Insurance, visit elpsinsurance.com. Elps like the mountain insurance like the insurance, I guess, .com, elpsinsurance.com. Now, for those of you listening in Accident, Maryland, we've got a new Spotify playlist that's all yours. It's only songs about mistakes. Regrets, I've had a few. Now, sadly, I've run out of time today to spoil the ending of the Oppenheimer movie. So you'll just have to wait until next time for that. Don't Google anything in the meantime, okay? This is Jared Career reminding you to not fuck with moose because moose have feelings too. Actually, I don't even know if that's true. I just try not to fuck with them because they're goddamn immense. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the unbillable hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.